Good morning, everybody. I wanted to just quickly remind you, if you love B2B SaaS and you're loving all these CEOs I have on, remember, you can get all of their data in a big, beautiful spreadsheet at gitlatka.com. That's G-E-T-L-A-T-K-A.com. So I hope you're enjoying the month. I love December. I love the holidays. And here is our program for today. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. They had no money when they started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everybody. My guest this morning is Kurt Abrahamson. He is, well, really prior to joining Share This, he served as a CEO at socialmedia.com or Living Social. Now, currently, obviously, he's a CEO at Share This. Before that, he also served as a director at Google, managing the direct sales channel for publishers and global launch of AdSense, the CEO of Jupiter Communication and president at Jupiter Media Metrics. Kurt, are you ready to take us to the top? I am, absolutely. All right, so you go from Google to, I'm going to oversimplify here and offend you, a, a sharing widget. What, what's going through your head? <laughs> so um, the thing that was most exciting about Share This and is still the most exciting is the global reach uh, that the sharing tools have. So we sit on over 3 million domains globally. We see a huge amount of data. We help publishers with simple solutions that make their business easier. So it was and is a top 10 property if you just look at the distribution of the tools. And so that was what was exciting. A lot of people are going to go, Nathan, you have a guy, this is the sharing widget. You have this guy, Kurt, on like what's going on here. Well, guys, you guys, part of what's happened in the space that Kurt is in, there are loads of copycats. So it's tricky to tell sometimes just from a UI perspective, what is share this and what is not. Kurt, I'm talking about maybe WordPress plugins, other little widgets that someone built in their basement. How do you differentiate? What's your moat? What's unique about what you guys do? So our tools have always been, we are one of the leaders in the market. The tools are simple. Um, and we continue to innovate and offer new plugins, new tools, new uh, layouts of the tools. Um, we have email notifications that publishers can use. We have uh, ability to test articles in Facebook very quickly and figure out which one is going most viral. So it's a series of tools that we continue to launch. When you see competitors, sometimes it's just using our logo because the logo is sort of open source. So you can see people with the share this widget. Um, and that couldn't be us. That could be someone else, as you notice. So it's um, we differentiate by our simplicity and our focus on publishers. It makes a lot of sense. Tell me your business model. How do you make money? So we make money uh, in two ways. Right now, we make money mo- mostly through licensing the data. Um, we have a bunch of partners. Uh, the terms and conditions with the publishers are they get our tools for free and we get limited rights to the data. It's all anonymous. We don't sell one publisher's data to another publisher, but we create audiences and we create opportunities for marketers and data companies to use our data uh, to power their own model. Well, so give me an example of that. So when you use the word publisher, just so my audience understands, I could be a publisher. Anyone listening is a publisher with a blog that uses share this on their blog. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, so from a publisher point of view, we work with publishers like TMZ and USA Today at the top, but the vast majority of our publishers are small blogs that are looking for uh, a, a solution uh, for the readers. And, you know, someone asked me about this the other day, like, what kind of sites are in your network? You know, do you have certain SKUs this way or that way? And we really don't, right? You know, and sort of the analogy I use, it's not like uh, gun control people use add this and um, uh, and NRA people use share this, right? It's just very, very uh, up to the publishers in terms of what tools they want to offer their audience. So just to be clear, this is not a, a SaaS model. You don't charge a 10 or $20 monthly fee to people to use this. Uh, the publisher tools have always been free. That's the, that's the value proposition of the publishers is they get the tools. They don't have to pay for them. We update them. You know, when a service like Pinterest becomes popular, we offer a Pinterest button. And look, of course, Nathan publishers can do this on their own. Um, it's not that difficult, but the simplicity of what we offer and our focus on it is attractive to publishers of all sizes. So take me back to the money side of things. You package the data, it's unanimous, and you sell it. Give me an example, if you can, of a buyer of that data. It's anonymous, not unanimous. Oh, anonymous. Uh-huh. Got it. <laughs> My, hey, it's Kurt. It's the morning. Give me a break, all right? Oh, well, I just want to make sure that, you, <laughs> uh, that they don't think it's unanimous data. Thank you. Uh-oh. Thank you. Uh, an example of a client of ours is LiveRamp. Um, so LiveRamp, you know, we put our data into the LiveRamp marketplace and other users can access it. Uh, it's generally available in DMPs and DSPs for users to, uh, for, for companies to buy. And so we have, you know, 30 or 40 million people who've shared content in the entertainment vertical that are interested in entertainment content, a lot of celebrity and blog um, kind of sites. And so we're able to accumulate, again, anonymously, privacy compliant. Um, um, and that's what public, that, that's what's attractive to our model. So how does uh, like a live ramp, for example, you know, obviously don't get into the contract specifics, but what what is the pricing model? Is it per line of data, per API call, per, per what? Well, we have two models generally. Some In some cases, it's an all-you-can-eat model. You get access to the full stream of data and you pay us a fixed fee. Uh, generally on a monthly basis, monthly basis on annual contracts. And then we also sell the data just like a lot of other companies on sort of a CPM basis. You know, you can buy an audience of this size and of this interest for, you know, a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, whatever the price may be. And if you had to pick one of those and, and label it your most important revenue stream, which one would it be the fixed fee or the CPM basis? It's a great question. The fixed fee ultimately is, um, the the SaaS business model that we've been working hard to get on the the um, the variable though has global distribution um, and we get it out there in a lot of different ways a lot of different uh, endpoints as our head of product says you know one of the goals of the company is share this data everywhere so that no matter what your use cases or where you're located um, you know you can find use of our data now the other thing that's really um, our moat so to speak is that 70% of the publishers and the data is non-US, um, which is surprising to a lot of people, right? I mean, it's surprising to me because share this, you know, we don't have anyone in India or Australia or Brazil, and yet there's thousands of publishers each month that go to, in those countries, that go to sharethis.com or WordPress and download our tools. Uh, so it's quite an interesting global distribution play. Just focused on your flat fee model, what's the average customer paying you per month? I assume there's many cohorts, but what's the average, would you say? 
Uh, I would say the average is ten to fifteen thousand. Okay, so the, you are very much in the high touch sales cycle, maybe several month sales cycle. You know, sell longer term contract kind of range. You can afford to put an inside salesperson on these accounts. I wish it was only two months, but yes. You got <laughs> what is a sales cycle? <laughs> oh, it can be any. Uh, it can be up to six months. Oh wow! Okay. Okay. You know, I mean, when you get working with big companies, you know, one of the things that's really important, especially in this market, is is the data privacy compliant. There's so many voluntary rules in terms of making sure that the data is not sensitive information. It's not PII, um, you know, individually identifiable information. And so a lot of that is, you know, big companies wanting to make sure that you have the right privacy um, you know, rules in place and everything. And that's changing a lot too in Europe. They're going to stricter rules next year. So we're spending a lot of time on that as well. Now, this isn't cheap to build out. You'd raise significant capital. How much have you raised to date? We've raised over 50 million to date. Um, a lot of that money was raised when we were um, more focused on being a media business. So we were selling um, the data and the media to agencies. What do you mean the media? Uh, so we would buy... Um, inventory on the exchanges and we would sell to Procter and Gamble a campaign that included our data as well as our running the media for them. Um, as the agency world has started to consolidate and a company, Procter and Gamble is a good example. They've gone from 500 vendors to 50 vendors in the last two or three years. That's one of the things that's been going on in the VC world, right? Which is all these companies that were funded to offer different solutions. Uh, a lot of those solutions were great, but the agencies decided they just couldn't keep buying and buying and buying. So uh, media business, you know, when you when you run your inventory, generally 40 to 50 percent of that money goes to the publisher, so to speak, directly for that inventory. And so it's a lower margin, more capital intensive business. Now, give me your personal story here. So I, I don't believe you were the founder, but obviously you're currently the CEO. How did that transition from founder to you being CEO take place? And what year was that? So it was 2011. Uh, the guy who founded the company, Tim Shigel, did an awesome job in terms of um, getting the tools out to different publishers and testing different business models. What year was that that he founded it? Uh, 2007. Okay. So they spent three or four years working on getting the tools out, building a social media platform, trying to figure out if there was ways to monetize and go that direction. But ultimately, the board felt you know, a media or a data model where the revenue was coming in more directly would be um, would be a stronger one. And because I had spent four years, uh, actually six years at Google, um, but the first two to three years uh, launching AdSense, which was obviously four publishers and a revenue generator for Google, uh, my background fit, fit great. And Tim actually recruited me to come in and, and be the CEO. And he's the chairman of the company. And then fast forward to today. So you've been doing this for the past six years. How many customers just on like the live ramp type of customer are you guys serving now? So we have about 30 direct customers on the data. Um, and we have been investing our resources and our time into building that data business, um, mostly over the last 18 months. And it's going really well. Um, you know, we have, you know, the, the, the strengths of our data is it's global reach. It's very scalable. Uh, it's very recent and ongoing data. Um, fast-moving data because people are sharing and clicking on content all the time. A lot of his recent data in the market is some of that old-school data, you know, household income, demographics, cars. You don't change that very often, right? You don't buy a new car every month. You don't buy a new house every year, um, things like that. So our data has been um, a great addition to the market. 
CRMs might be the tool that I fight with the most. I just haven't found one that I really liked. I don't know if you guys are the same way, but they're just so tricky. And a while ago, I had a guy named John Lee on my show. He's the CEO of ProsperWorks. And he told me they just passed 40,000 customers and 24 million in annual revenue. So they're doing about $286,000 in revenue per employee. And I said, wow, why is this working? And I said, you know what? I'm going to try it. So I went to prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM, signed up, and it immediately became clear why it worked. Those of you that love growth hacking, you should go to that link just to see how they do the onboarding. That's prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. In short, it's like magic. You know, I'm not the guy that, you know, finishes the sales call and then takes the time to actually put data into the CRM. They have this magical way of just doing it. And it's a beautiful thing. So every morning when I wake up, I just go, okay, what leads are ProsperWorks telling me to reach out to because they're most likely to close and it works so well. And you guys know I love money and I love only focusing on the leads that are going to close. So I encourage you to try ProsperWorks. They're sponsoring the show. Check them out at prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. Folks, that's again prosperworks.com forward slash love your CRM. I want to get in your head and understand from a product perspective why, uh, I mean, you talked a little bit about margin kind of deterioration in your other model, and that's why you're moving maybe towards this flat fee model, but it sounds like over the past 18 months, if you've got 30 people signed up at a minimum of 10 grand a month, you went from nothing to a $300,000 a month revenue stream or $3 million in ARR pretty quickly. I mean, that's good growth. What, what was the base that you were moving away from? Was it that CPM kind of selling your, you know, your audience in an anonymous way? So we are moving away from the uh, the media model of selling the data and the media together uh, to just focusing on on making the data available to clients, uh, and then they use you know more or less their own media. And so it wasn't just high margin; it really was where we found the sweet spot in terms of the quality of the data. We call it sharing intelligence. For ten years, we've been collecting all of this data around consumers' interests and and the content they share, um, and all around global from global sites. And so it was really a strategic move to recognize the real value that we had was the data, and the media was a value add. But it's really all about the data. So I mean, is it feasible to say four, three, maybe even as soon as two years from now, eighty percent of your revenue, ideally in your mind, is going to be coming from this kind of new data play that that you've opened up? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What, like the live ramp model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we work with all the, you know, the large data companies out there. So we work with Newstar and Nielsen and Axiom uh, besides live ramp and, a bunch, you know, a bunch of companies overseas as well. So starting to get in with the agencies. Um, so it's actually and it's very scalable model because, um, you know, there's really not a lot of incremental cost to. Uh, adding a new customer onto the data. So Kurt, before you had kind of this predictable revenue, which you're building the data platform now, was your are your old legacy revenue streams, were they predictable? Were they easy to plan, you know, headcount expansion around and things like that? Or was it very unpredictable? So um, for a while it was predictable and then I kept going up fairly um, <laughs> regularly. Um, and that so was you can very diplomatically plan. said. But you can always plan when things are going up easier than when they're going down. But I think the nature of IO-driven businesses is that they are very short-term. In What's general, IO-driven? Uh, insertion order. So essentially, you get an insertion order from Starcom MediaVest for Sprint to run a campaign for 30 or 60 days. Um, they tend not to be year-long contracts. 
They tend to be very, um, you know, they can stop and start them whenever they want to. And so the real benefit for us is that these are annual contracts so we can plan against that revenue. They generally have a high renewal rate. Um, and so it's just a much more predictable business model. Mm-hmm. Um, talking just about, I know I, I, well, let me see if you're, you'll give this answer. I assume maybe you won't, but it will, it will be very helpful because I'm, I'm trying to formulate my questions and I don't, I'm guessing your old revenue stream. I mean, was that at the point where it was doing kind of more or less than $10 million per year? I mean, how significant was that stream for you? Significantly more than 10 million. Significantly more. Okay. But less than a hundred. Can we put a cap on it? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So between 10 and a hundred million, the legacy business, the new business in the last 18 months, you've signed up 30 customers at a minimum of 10 grand per month. It's doing call it three, four, maybe 5 million bucks uh, run rate right now. You see that becoming your main revenue stream in two to three years. Absolutely. It should become our main revenue stream next year. That's great. Okay. So I want to just focus on the new cohort that you're going after for a second. Um, as you transition into that with your background, how do you think about uh, what the economical behavior on these accounts, uh, how it's going to pan out, you know, LTV to CAC, payback period, things like that. So um, like I said, the, because of the way we structured our business and the way we work with publishers, there's not a lot of direct cost to the actual business itself. So when we add a new customer, we're not paying someone else really for adding that customer. So it's highly leverageable. Um, payback um, once we cover the cost of, of building and supporting the publisher network, um, which we don't pay someone directly for, we pay our team to do it. What's it's your team highly, size, Kurt? Uh, total company team uh, size is 70, about a third in product and engineering. Uh, most of the product engineering work is focused on the data business right now. Okay. And what are the other two? How many of them are inside sales reps or sales and marketing? The sales team is about um, 15. Um, the marketing team is about half a dozen. Okay, got it, got it. Six marketing. Engineers and, you know, G&A and all that kind of stuff. Uh, mostly focused in the U.S. We have a small team in, in London um, that's building it. So the, it, once we get a client and signed up and, and launched, we're able to pay back on it relatively quickly. Um, we still have that legacy business, which we, you know, economics are fit into as well. Um, but as we move to a more data dominated business, the economics become very positive. If we talk about CAC in terms of being fully weighted, so include those 15 in sales and maybe even the six or so in marketing, uh, what are you, I mean, what is the fully weighted CAC to get one of these new 30 kind of data customers, would you say? That's, uh, you know, or do you not care? By the way, don't answer if you don't care about it. Is that a critical thing for you right now? It's not a critical thing. Okay. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. Fair enough. Good. Um, when you're trying to project things like uh, lifetime value of these new customers that are paying for data to the tune of call it 120 to 200 ish grand per year, um, do you forecast uh, potential future product launches and add that expansion ARPU into those accounts when you plan for LTV, or do you just look at what you currently have? So um, we continue to innovate on the product side. Um, but the core products are generally the same. You either access the data sort of on a fixed fee, all-you-can-eat basis, um, or you pay sort of on a, on a variable um, rev share um, volume-based kind of um, um, parameters. And so we're working to essentially improve the quality of the data, the size of the audiences we can offer, um, the fields that are available to, to, to access and look at, but in general, it's um, it's enhancing the value and the delivery of the data. There's not a lot of 
new things per se that we have to do in order to keep our clients interested in the products we're offering. Got it. Um, a- any churn so far in this new business? Uh, it's it's relatively a new business, but no, right now I would say ninety uh, percent plus. Yep. Now now ninety percent annual retention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now on the flip side of that, revenue expansion, I imagine, has only been around eighteen months. That's not really something that you probably have a good you know sample size for yet either, right? Uh, exactly. But you know, when we look out at this business, um, you know, we can see clear paths to twenty five, fifty, hundred million in revenue. Um, and a lot of that is just continuing to penetrate large accounts as well as to pe- continue penetrating around the world uh, and into different markets. Um, the, the U.S. data market is hardly saturated, but there's a lot of players. There's a lot of companies in that. In Europe, in Latin America, Asia, Pacific, there's not a lot of, of companies in the market at all. And there's not a lot of companies that can offer a global player the ability to get into all four of those markets at the same time. So that's another big advantage of what we do is you don't have to find someone in APAC to work with or find someone in MIA to work with. You can work with us so we can target globally for you. Last kind of question here before we wrap up with the very easy uh, famous five. Uh, you were in Google in 2011, maybe when thoughts of the wildfire acquisition were being sent around the team. Then in 2012, you see this onslaught of M&A in this space. Buddy Media goes for $600 million, and Evolver $300 million, Vitru $300 million, Wildfire to Google for $350 or so million. Share this, I imagine, was fielding offers at the time, too. Why do you decide not to sell in 2012 when the market seemed red freaking hot? So at that time, um, we were not focused specifically on monetizing in the social media platforms, right? We, our audience, the intelligence we gather is around people who are sharing content to and from. So it was a different model. and We were focused on a media model at that point in time. So um, we definitely have always had companies interest in us, but we weren't specifically in that social media space of the companies that you mentioned. And by the way, most of those acquisitions were great for the companies that were acquired, but they, the business model did not work out the way a lot of those big companies. Thought. I think Google shut wildfire down, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. No, I, I just, I was looking at timing and the research for this interview, and I think you guys did a pretty significant Series C, I think of around 20 or 25 million, right as these big acquisitions were happening. I'm curious if you learn, use kind of that heat to your advantage in negotiating the valuation or the round size with Deutsche Telekom. Yes. <laughs> As he says, he says with a smile. <laughs> All right, Kurt, let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, what's your favorite business book? Um, the book I'm reading now that I really enjoy is uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Have you heard of that book? I have not. It's how uh, managers can work with their teams to really have open and uh, deep dialogues around um, uh, performance and reviews. So I recommend that book. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying currently? I always study Jeff Bezos. I think what he's done is is just amazing with Amazon. He's always uh, moved that company forward. And I think the Whole Foods acquisition was really interesting. And, and um, there'll be more to come in that area. Number three, is there a favorite online tool you have besides your own? Slack. No, very easy. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Seven. Seven. Okay, good. And what's your situation, Kurt? Married, single, you have kids? Um, divorced. Divorced. It's 21-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter. Very cool. You think they'll be entrepreneurs? Uh, maybe, actually. Maybe. Good. Maybe. Good. See. And how old are you, Kurt? 56. Last I question. That yes, you got to own it, baby. <laughs> Last question. Take us back 36 years. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? 
um, that it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to to fail um, as long as you keep moving forward. Guys, there you have it from Kurt, uh, now currently CEO of Share This. You know, his story reminds me a lot. We just had Jeff, the CEO of Foursquare on, and they are pivoting their model as well from a hot consumer startup to a heavy, heavy B2B SaaS data model. They are basically, Kurt, they're a lot like you guys in that people are signing up for them for their location data because they're not Google, right? So Uber's using Foursquare because they're not Google. You guys are also, it seems to be moving to a heavy, heavy data play, you know, high contract value. Uh, you know, high touch, longer sales cycle. Uh, but there you guys have it with share this. Kurt, thank you for taking us to the top. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day.